Open God's word together for a second time. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, thou art great and glorious. Thy name is to be praised, and thou alone art to be worshipped. What a privilege we enjoy to be able to come before thee now in this afternoon hour as thy children, as those who are friends of the truth, and to look together into thy word, knowing that we can claim that promise that where two or three are gathered in thy name, thou art here in the midst. In a, in a special way, in, a, in a, a feeling way, if we would be open to receive it. Heavenly Father, we want to remember now in prayer those that could not gather with us, those that have been constrained because of illness or age, those who have difficulties, things that are beyond their control that prevent them from gathering with us. Dear Lord, bless them even though they could not be with us here in person. Those that are running from thee, Heavenly Father, those that perhaps have made themselves distant from the truth, help them to realize that there is no outrunning the Lord of the universe, for thou art indeed everywhere, though we may not be aware of it. Be with us now as we look into thy word together and bless us from the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For this afternoon's meditation, the 12th chapter of John's Gospel is before me. John chapter 12. It's a lengthy chapter, so I'd like to read a portion of it. Perhaps starting with the 20th verse. John chapter 12, starting with verse 20. This is in Jerusalem. Uh, Christ has entered it in a triumphal manner, riding on the back of a donkey. And now he is in the city itself. And uh, perhaps this might be the peak of his popularity. Uh, there were those that were waving palm branches, saying Hosanna to the son of David. But of course, there were many from many nations that were there. And we pick up now in the 20th verse. And there were certain Greeks among them that were come up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said, An angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have light, while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be children of light." These things spake Jesus and departed, and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah say it again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. The study of the life of Christ and looking at his life, especially into this final week, is a surprising one. Time seems to slow down as it reaches into this final week. And he says things and explains things to people that can't understand him. We have the benefit, of course, of knowing the whole account, knowing what happens next. But for a moment, put yourself in the shoes of those that were listening. Try to imagine what it must have been like to hear this man speak. 
there were Gentile believers that were fed up with paganism. They had had enough of their little gods. They were looking for something greater. And they found something in the God of the Hebrews, a God, the idea of, of which was so great that it dwarfed their little pantheon of gods with their squabbling and bickering and infighting and so on. And this, this truth brought them also to Jerusalem. There were strangers of every, every language there. And it was natural, I suppose, that with the crowds that gathered, the, the, the city of Jerusalem proper, I think, swelled to over, well over a million people during Passover. It was just teeming with people. You can just imagine the scenes. I mean, all of this before the days of indoor plumbing as well. It must have been just rank in that city. So many people crushed together. People coming from all over. That each bringing their sacrifice to to offer or money to exchange for a ritually clean animal that could be offered in the temple. I mean, the streets must have just been packed. You think the 401's bad on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, that has nothing compared to those crowded streets. And of course, during those times of, of, of press and crowds, the Romans were on high alert. Rebellion or... or uh, Riot could spring out at any time. National feelings and fervor was high. And in the middle of all this, this obscure country bumpkin of a rabbi comes riding into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey. And the children run in front of him with palm branches saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees just, we didn't read it, but the verse before we picked up says, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone out after him. So there were some Greeks that were there, and well-meaning, pious men that they were. They wanted to know more about who this man was. Perhaps this is the first they had heard of him. I don't know. But they wanted to meet this, this Jesus. And they found Philip, which was of Bethsaida in, in Galilee. It was already kind of on the fringe of Jewry. And they spoke with him. And then Philip goes and tells Andrew. And it's interesting, Andrew in Scripture, he's always bringing someone to see Jesus. That seems to be his role. And, and Andrew and Philip now come and tell Jesus. And then Jesus says something, and here I think we got a picture of it already this morning, but here it gets underlined again, that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is an upside-down kingdom. It's the reverse of what the world would think and expect. It's even perhaps the reverse of what the world is looking for. Jesus tells them this, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And perhaps they thought initially, well, this must be because of this triumphal entry. He's, he's, he's going to kick this whole thing off now. Now it's going to happen. We're here. We're, we're, at the, we're at the right time in history, right at the ground zero of this new movement. Here it comes. You know, 
the disciples had already begun to take things into their own hands. Do you realize that? Already there was two swords with them. Perhaps in anticipation of this armed revolt, Christ asks and says, does any man have a sword? Lord, here are two swords. Where did they get them? There was probably some inkling. Well, do you think this is it? Do you think this is when we're going to really rise up against the Romans? Look how many of us are here. The Roman garrison looks small by comparison. One big Russian, it's ours. We get to cleanse the temple and purify the holy city once more, just like the Maccabees did before us. But this time for real, because this time we have the king with us. And Jesus says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. But what does he say next? Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. Don't you mean your glory is this, this entry? Don't you mean the glory is to reestablish the throne of David and get rid of these oppressors? Finally put things back right again? No, that wasn't the glory Jesus was talking about. He was talking about his death, and they didn't understand him. Now, I've read something recently in a, in a book talking about the life of Christ and towards the end of his life. He seems to have only clearly and unmistakably revealed that he was the promised king after he was captured after there could be no release for him, after he knew there was no way that he could escape the cross, that's when he told him, it is as you say, I am he. You know, if he had said that at this time, perhaps the people would have risen up against the Romans. But Christ was saving that. The glory that was coming was still to come. That shabby little parade was not the glory Christ was talking about. But as Christ always did, as he was the pattern, he explains now what this means for us. He that loveth his life shall lose it. That should give all of us pause. Do you love your life? You know, with modern medicine, it's possible to prolong life, not indefinitely, but certainly longer than perhaps it's ever been before. We have tricks and technology that allows us to hang on to life for a little while longer. But Christ tells us, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. And he that hateth his life. Now, these are even stronger words, it seems. Okay, well, love him, but hate his life? In this world shall keep it unto life eternal. What could that mean? Again, put yourself in the sandals, I guess, of the people that were listening to Christ. What's he talking about? Is he talking about some suicide squad? Like the zealots were? A group of them that had vowed, even at the cost of their own life, to take down the hated Romans? Is that what he's preparing us for? If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. 
Now, imagine what it must have been like to watch the next week unfold. When Christ is captured finally, goes to a mock trial, knowing what he said just a short time before. What can all of this mean? Christ didn't actually explain it here. He just simply gives the instruction. And the pattern in Scripture is actually not only consistent throughout all of Scripture, I think, but it stands in stark contrast to our current culture. You see, today people say, well, if you explain it to me, then maybe I'll go along with it. Or until you explain something to me, I'm not going to go along with it. Christ says, you do first, and by doing, you will understand. Follow me, and you will know. If any man will know, if my, know my words, let him do them. I'm paraphrasing. So what holds people back? What is it that keeps people from doing that? That's what to love your own life means. To love your autonomy to the point that you will not lay it down. Do you realize what Christ did? You see, God is the only truly autonomous being. There is nothing and no one that can restrain God from doing anything. When people say things about God that have prevented God from doing something, that's not entirely correct. There isn't anything that he cannot do. He will always act in accordance with his character. But there are no limitations on his power or his ability. Now think about that in the context of Christ. Being willing, as it were, to give up that right of self-determination, to suffer for people that hated him, to make a way that if they were willing, they would find life, that he was going to be the pattern for all of that. That's hard. You know, we call ourselves a secular society now, I think, in the West what remnants of, of, a, of a Christian culture are just vestigial. They, they don't really have any practical bearing, it seems, on decisions or society. But the, the, the religion that has taken the place of Christianity in the West is the religion of self. We are more fiercely autonomous than I think at any other point in human history. We're talking uh, on the way back from camp about the origin of names. And uh, the name that came up, and I, I think I've, I've got this correct, was uh, Zimmerman. Not an uncommon name in, uh, in German pronounced Zimmermann. Uh, it means literally a man of the room. And it would be the German equivalent of the English name Chamberlain. So one of the chamber. 
And that was a position of high honor. We got talking about this, that it used to be that you were, you were honorable by, by connection with someone else. To serve someone who was, who was high and recognized was a great honor. To be acknowledged as one who could come in the presence of a king or serve in the presence of a king, that was noteworthy. But now to serve anyone but yourself, you know, working for the man is the kind of slang way of saying, of, of, of talking about this kind of uh, servitude, I guess. Yet the Lord of the entire universe lays aside his autonomy and says, I will now serve you. That's an idea that's too big for me. But it's one that puts us in a very difficult spot if we don't bow the knee. If the God of all, the, of all, of all time and space, the God of all glory, willingly chose to come to suffer, to lay aside his own will, to go through to the cross, to suffer for us. Anything less than to bow the knee before such a one is outright rebellion against heaven. We may not think of it, think of it like that, but this, this attitude of self being at the center, and we don't realize that that in and of itself is the poison of original sin. It's the, it's the sole cause of all of the social ills, all of our personal problems, our problems with relationships, our self at the center of everything. Christ shows us the way. He calls it hating your own life. He then talks about light and dark and there's a lot here. We, of course, won't be able to cover it all. But he encourages people because there's a limited time. There's a window. He says, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not, knoweth not whither he goeth. We were up in Algonquin just a short while ago with a bunch of the young people. And uh, I think the real standout moment from that trip was Sunday evening. The wind calmed down, got quiet and still, the clouds cleared away, and we went on the canoes out into the lake to go look up at the stars. And in that stillness, it was amazing to see how far not only sound would travel, but light. There was someone with a flashlight walking around on the far side of the lake and you could clearly see that little bit of light. We heard at camp uh, a single candle can be seen from something like 13 miles away in, in darkness. The power of light and the importance of using it. You know, when we were coming back, of course, we had flashlights with us, but out in the middle of the lake, your eyes adjust to the darkness and you can see fairly well, even with no moon, just with the starlight alone. But then you get close to the shore and it's just this inky blackness. Unless you had a flashlight to find out where to put in the canoe, it would be tricky. The importance of light and the importance of making use of that light 
There's a limited window given for all of us. The blackness that lies outside of the light is not a momentary one, not a a nighttime followed by a dawn, but the blackness is eternal for those that reject the light. Christ came to show us the way. He made it plain. It wasn't until after the fact that there was an understanding of what Christ's sacrifice meant, but he came first to show us the Father, to show us, as we heard this morning, what the Father is really like. And I'm so thankful that he didn't just show up for that final week, die and disappear again into heaven, saying, I've done my part. He came to show us the Father. That was the great mystery. You know, the hymn that was picked this morning, Jehovah Thee We Honor. That was the unapproachable God of the Old Testament, the I am that I am that dwelt in, in the... There's a bunch of illustrations that are given. One is fire, one is darkness, one is light, that he was this unapproachable one. And yet Christ came to show us that he was actually our Father. What a, what, a, what a marvel to think that the God who made the stars, and as we looked up there, we thought, I, I just thought of the difference, a little flashlight, and then those huge balls of burning gas millions of light years away. God knows and keeps track of all of that. He knows where we are right in the middle of this lake in a canoe on this little speck of a planet. And yet he spun those same stars into space for us to marvel at and wonder at. It's, it's, it's too great. It really puts us in our place. With that kind of an understanding, we have a little bit better gauge of who this I am is. And the only proper response to that is, I am not. He is. If he's done so much, what right do I have to hang on to my puny throne? Is it really a prize to be held? Wouldn't you rather serve a God who's so much greater than you? Wouldn't that be an honor? You have a little bit of time left. There's still some light given. This world is in the twilight, halfway between the light and the darkness. This is the moment of decision. And Christ says, follow me. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. In conclusion, the, those, those sights that we viewed when we were up in Algonquin looking at those stars and watching them come out, because of what I know about the one who created them and because of the relationship I have with him, those stars are not a scary thing. Those distances you know, my head knows that there's millions of light years and a light year is the distance you can travel at the speed of light in a year. And I mean, all of that stuff is just sort of fluff, though, really. There's no way for my brain to really comprehend that, how big a light year is. Please. Six hours at a stretch in a car is long enough. After that, I get stiff and i got to get out and stretch a little bit. But the bigger thing is the one who created all of those things. 
is my Father that loves me. And that I don't have problems with. That I can grasp. That I can accept and understand. Isn't that amazing? If you don't have that, I would think that the vastness of the universe would be a scary thing. Your own insignificance compared to its size. How do you spend the next 50, 60, maybe 70 years of your life? How are you going to make it significant? If it's just matter that will one day turn back to dust. I'd like to read a few verses to conclude. Ah, what is this futile yearning after treasures earth may hold? That shall burn at my returning honor, pleasure, goods, and gold. But to me, by whom in heaven everlasting life is given, only few do firmly cling and accept me as their king. Lo, with tears I went to summon Israel, my covenant folk. Come to me, your faithful amen, and accept my easy yoke. Ye pretenders, there approaches soon the time of sad reproaches. All who now will not believe, then their judgment shall receive. What by prophets once was spoken shall in very truth befall. Sight shall from their eyes be taken and their minds be dulled withal. Woe to all those who would never heed the pleading of the Savior, who in paths of sin abide, and whose hearts are filled with pride. Hearken, therefore, every nation, to the Savior's word today. He has come to bring salvation and would wash your sins away. O believe when he doth summon, for his word is yea and amen. Here and in eternity, all who trust in him are free. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. This concludes our service. Amen.